This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. As I introduce my interview with Eric Fingerhut, I have to share a quick vignette. I was on a Southwest flight from Maryland to LA and was using the time to edit this episode. Just as I was at the part where he discusses his time in Congress, I took a break to stretch my legs. I started schmoozing with a flight attendant in the back, who it turns out, like Eric, is from Cleveland. He remembered the congressman well and even had heard of Hillel, though I don't believe he was Jewish. So given his renown, even 30,000 feet in the air, Eric Fingerhut is certainly a Jew you should know. Let's meet him now. We are here with Eric Fingerhut, international president of Hillel. How are you, Eric? I'm terrific. Thank you, Rabbi. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Very, very excited to get to talk to you today, learn a little bit more about you, your professional arc and your dreams and passions for the Jewish people as it stands today. But first, I want to begin by just going back in time a little bit. I don't know how much of a little bit, but a little bit and and getting a sense of your personal biography, where you grew up, how you grew up, what your, your Jewish background was, and just give us a little bit of context as to what brought you ultimately to this point. Well, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio which many people know is one of the absolutely amazing Jewish communities in the world. And I was so fortunate, really, to grow up both in a family that loved the Jewish people and loved Judaism, uh, and in a community that wrapped its arms around a young kid. I mean, I wasn't from a family that was a prominent family or anything, but there was always people there to help us and teach us and support us. So my mother, actually, who, Baruch Hashem, is uh, 92 years old, wow. a twin, and she and her twin sister, who are amazing, both of them live a mile apart from each other and see each other all the time, and they were the youngest of 13. Goodness. <laughs> wonderful Jewish family. My grandfather, who I never met, and grandmother, who I never met, came over from Hungary. Uh, six of the kids were born in Hungary, one on the boat at six here. He was a rabbi. As I said, I never never knew him, but I understand that he also had a beautiful voice. And uh, when they came to Cleveland, they owned a grocery store, as of course many people did in order to uh, earn a living. But he would ride the circuit of small towns in Ohio and Pennsylvania on the high holidays, whatever, he'd be hired, you know, to be the uh, cantor, the chazan, and, and a couple of my uncles inherited the voice, and, and, and I learned just a few of his melodies, but uh, not as I, I always wish I had the privilege of being able to study with him and, and learn from him. Did, something. Did, did you inherit his, uh, his vocal abilities? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I love to sing. I don't know whether I inherited the quality voice, but I do love to lead Dominic and Lane. I, I assume I got that from him. But uh, my father actually uh, was from a family of five kids. He grew up in Sandusky, Ohio, which is a small town. Again, cl- both classic 20th century American Jewish stories, right? Immigrant families came over between World War I and World War II, part of that great mass immigration from Eastern Europe, settled all over the country, went wherever there was a job or wherever there was a store, wherever you, know, you could make a living. The Army in World War II, I mean, really just amazing. You know, when you think about 
American life. And so we were so fortunate to grow up in a synagogue that Cantor taught me beautifully and a rabbi who I loved and, and taught us. And my, an aunt of mine who worked at Israel Bonds. So we were, you know, one of the, the first job I ever had was putting the envelopes on the back of the seats in the synagogues on the high holidays for the bond drive. My mother worked at the Cleveland Jewish News, and I put changed the light bulbs at the Jewish newsroom. So it was really just we were surrounded by it. And then, as I mentioned, that the Jewish community in Cleveland is an amazing community in terms of providing schools and Hebrew schools and trips and Zionism. And there were leaders of the community who were involved in in Russian, freeing Russian Jews, and we had walkathons for so many years. I mean, it was in the water, and just so, you know, really so incredibly fortunate to have grown up in that community. And you know, fast forwarding, I, I ended up with a passion for government and politics. I think also because of the Jewish community, and you know, because I saw that there's so many people in the Jewish community who were leaders in government and in president of one of the local synagogues was a judge, and everybody was involved in congressional campaigns and. So when I got involved in politics, running for the state legislature and then running for Congress, really the Jewish community was a huge part of it, right? They were proud of me. They supported me. Uh, and even though, the, of course, the districts that I represented was only a small part Jewish, but I always felt that I had some special responsibility in terms of representing and just modeling a leadership role for, for the Jewish community. But it really came from growing up in this Amazing community. And the truth is, Rabbi, everywhere I go, now that it's the first time in my life I've had a professional role in the Jewish community, everywhere I go, I run into people from Cleveland. That um, When I started this job, I went to Cleveland Heights High School, which is a suburban school. Howard Kaur, who's the head of APAC, yep. and Alan Gill, who at that time was the head of JDC, of the Joint Distribution Committee. And I all went to the same high school. And so, you know, three leaders of three of the largest to come out of the same high school at roughly yeah. about the same time tells you something about uh, about that community. The pride of Cleveland Heights. All right. I know that Cleveland to this day is known as a sort of a model federation and, you know, in terms of their infrastructure of the Jewish communities there. Really an amazing, you know, obviously my mother's still there and we're there, we visit all the time and we have friends all the time. So we, it's a, it's really, it's a very, very special community. And I was very blessed to grow up in it. Even though I'm a Ravens fan, I will uh, begrudgingly demonstrate some admiration. <laughs> This is a topic we should not broach. There's nothing, uh, you know, in Jewish life that you and I can't uh, reach across the boundaries to share and find common ground. But the Ravens, you'll never get it. <laughs> One of the, just so you know why, this is very personal. One of the first things I did in politics. So for your listeners, I ended up being a state legislator and a congressman, ran for U.S. Senate, and then was the chancellor of the university system in Ohio, which was an appointed position. But, um, the first thing I did when I got involved in politics was I managed the campaign of a candidate for mayor of Cleveland named Mike White. And we were successful. We won in 1989. He was elected mayor. And I went to work for him at City Hall. I was like a top advisor at City Hall. But the first things we did was we, we ran a, a, a campaign for a tax levy to build the new Indian Stadium. It was the Jacob Field, now Progressive Field. And we built the uh, what's now the Quick and Loan Arena to bring the Cavaliers back. And I think Art Modell was not happy about that <laughs> and helped that, that prompt to deal with the Ravens, which was you know real blow to our administration. And so Mayor White led the campaign for the new Browns expansion team. And I was part of that. Uh, I'll never forget it. We actually like convinced the NFL that what they had done with the Ravens was unfair to Cleveland and we got our Browns back. So uh, this is a very personal part of my life. <laughs> I can see that. It's, well, I guess I have to thank you then for helping drive the Browns out. <laughs> what made you want to actually run for office? I mean, obviously politics 
especially today. I don't know exactly what the, the reputation was maybe 20 or so years ago, 30 years ago. But certainly today, you know, it's not one of the more popular vocations by public sentiment. What made you want to run for office? What was sort of your, your aspirations, your, your dreams in that particular pursuit? Well, look, I'll tell you, you know, all the highfalutin stuff uh, in a second. But the honest truth is that being in public service is the one thing in my life that I absolutely knew that I wanted to do. I mean, everything else, like being President Hillel is an amazing honor, but it came to me, I wasn't planning this, right? And and then any being chancellor of the university system was so loved it, but I didn't plan it. I didn't know how to, you know, I just remember when I was younger, I, you know, I used to read the sports pages when the newspaper would come every day. And then at some point I started reading the front page and I was just captivated by the news and then started to think about who makes these decisions, who helps guide the future of the community. And then I started reading biographies of presidents and congressmen. I mean, I, you know, my reading, I, I don't think I've read a, a non-fiction a book in many, many <laughs> years. I mean, I just was captivated by history and by stories of people who were involved. There was something about it that just captivated me. And I felt it was something, you know, that I had a passion for. And then, of course, as I became more aware of what the issues were in the community, it really did become clear to me that this was an amazing way to make a difference, that you know you could change life on a grand scale. It's important work to change lives one at a time, of course, but you know the opportunity to try to affect people on a grander scale. And I mentioned already this mayor's race that led to the Browns and the Ravens debacle, but actually there was much, much more to it than that, as you can imagine. I mean, the city of Cleveland has gone through some very, very tough time. You know, and the idea that we could actually make a difference in the lives of the city for education, for economic development. So I just loved it. I loved everything about it. The, the other thing about public service that I love, you know, again, we people see the negative, of course, of the folks who are involved in it. But my experience is it's like every other profession, Rabbi, there's, there's people who are amazing and are doing it for all the right reasons and are brilliant and uh, compassionate and caring. And then there's people who are not so much, right? And uh, I mean, you'll find that in, in teaching, you'll find it in, in business, and you maybe even in the rabbinate, and, and you'll find it in, in government. I mean, it's just the case. But overall, I, it's, I have such respect for the people that I worked with. And the other thing about it, and this is something we'll talk a little bit about when we talk about the Jewish community, but one of the most incredible things about being a, uh, an elected official is well, two, two aspects of the same thing, which is, first of all, you get invited into people's homes and communities, churches, community centers, in a way that you would never otherwise be, right? So you just, there's such a privilege to get to see people in their own communities and you know, the things that they're passionate about and to be their guest. And then, of course, they have in you, they've placed their hopes that you're going to provide some help and support. I, I felt like I learned so much. I was so exposed to people's cultures and lives and faith and communities in a way that I would never have been able to had I not been in politics. I don't know what other profession. I'm sure there's something else that can get you into people's lives that way, but it was just amazing. I loved it. And, you know, I represented such a diverse community, diverse district, and came from a diverse community. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is when you're in the legislature, everybody knows the country's diverse, so Congress is diverse, and you see that you have to build code. If you're going to be successful, and this is something we're not doing very well in this time of our, you know, our history, building coalitions across different. But Ohio is like that, too. So I was 10 years in the state senate in Ohio. 
And, you know, Ohio is from the industrial northeast in Cleveland to the Appalachian southeast and down along the, the mountains in Athens, Ohio, and then down practically you're in Kentucky when you're in Cincinnati and you're in Indiana when you're out on the, I mean, it's very, very different. And so if you're going to get, and, and, they, and the state Senate was 33 members, 33 of us representing the entire state. And if you're going to get anything done, you have to understand, not just become friendly and, you know, and. I know your kids and you know my kids and you know, but really understand why somebody thinks the way they think and how they see an issue differently than you. You know the, the famous uh, Hillel Shammai story about Elu the Elu. You know both sides of an argument are equally valid, but law goes with Hillel because he listened. His followers listened to the other side and understood the other side and cited the other side. There's a real lesson there about it. you can always compromise. Say I'm at ten, you're at zero, let's compromise at five, right? You can always do something like that. But if you really, really want to bring two sides together, you have to understand the other side's point of view and give it respect and give it, be in somebody else's shoes, right? Another part of our teaching in Pirkeabos. So I loved that about the legislature. I just loved it, that I got to know people who saw the world differently than I did, but felt equally passionate about how they saw the world. And so it was such an amazing learning experience and such a privilege. Sounds like we could use a little bit more of that today. Definitely one of the things that we need to remind ourselves, by the way, not just in America, but in the Jewish community, that different points of view can be both valid and that you have to really understand them before you start to state your own opposition or disagreement, you have to understand the other side of the argument. Once you got to you know, the higher levels of political activity, political elected office, Congress, the United States Congress, I imagine that's a whole other you know, level of operation. At any point, did you begin to become disillusioned, sort of lose some of that luster and that idealism that certainly seemed to both inspire your initial movement towards politics and then it sounds like even the the early days of elected office, did at any point that begin to wane, lose some of its appeal as you were beset by some of the pragmatism, so to speak, or cynicism, if you will, of the grander stage? The answer is not really. I mean, I think you have to distinguish between the love of public service and the inspiration. And look, the campaigns themselves can be challenging. I mean, obviously, I lost. I lost my seat in Congress. I lost when I ran for the U.S. Senate. I didn't win every election that I you know, that I participated in. And those are can be pretty brutal. <laughs> Some of the stuff is not in your control. You know, you're affected by the mood of the country or what's happening around you. When I lost my seat in Congress was, you know, one of those years, 94, where there was a big sweep one way and sweep the other way. And it wasn't that much one person could do. So those kinds of things can be frustrating. And, you know, eventually when I stopped running, when I gave up elective office, it was because, frankly, the campaigns had gotten exhausting. And I wasn't sure that where my current point of view was fit so neatly, you know, it was becoming a more partisan time. I'm really not a partisan guy. I don't have a partisan heart or bone in my body, I don't think. So it was feeling like it wasn't my moment, you know, that I wasn't as good a fit for that moment. So I, you know, I stopped running for office. But but I never stopped respecting people who do it, and I never stopped respecting the art of government and the responsibility of government. And then, you know, when I went into appointed office as chancellor of the University system. I, I, yeah, I worked very closely with the elected officials in the legislature and the Congress, and I loved it. So I, I just had the deepest respect. But there, but for me, there came a time when it was enough. I couldn't, you know, I've been running for office for twenty years, and I now had a, a young family. It was just, it was time to stop. And, and I haven't looked back. It was one of, it was a, one of those moments where the minute I knew that it was time, I made a decision, and I never looked back. 
Any times really stand out for you in your time in Congress? Anything exceptional that happened? Anyone you got to meet that really was transformative for you? You know, obviously, since this is a Jewish podcast, I'll tell you that I was in Congress when I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee. But it, was, it was an amazing time. I was there for the Oslo Peace Accords. So I was on the South Lawn of the White House. Hmm. And Sakh Rabin and Yasser Arafat signed the famous agreement with Bill Clinton pulling them together. And I was there for the famous handshake. You know, whatever people think in retrospect at the moment. I can only tell you that, you know, we all had this hope for peace, you know, that was amazing. And then I was in the chamber, I don't know if you remember, if you know this history, but when Israel signed the peace accord with Jordan, actually the peace accord was signed over in the Middle East, but uh, Yitzhak Rabin and King Hussein were the first two foreign leaders who jointly addressed the joint session of Congress as opposed to each one individually. Um, I did not know you, that. Wow. You know, I urge your listeners, anybody who feels like discouraged about the hope for peace, and of course we live in a time when it's easy to be discouraged about the hope for peace, Eric Israel and its neighbors, go back and look at the YouTube video of Rabin and King Hussein, how they looked at each other, how they hugged each other, you know, how they spoke to each other in front of that joint session of Congress. And sitting there as a Jewish member of Congress, Sucker Bean came to the end of his speech and took out a, one of those, you know, those black nylon kippahs that we, that they have in synagogues, you know, for people yeah. who, yeah, cool kippahs, you, know, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you get a hundred of them for 10 bucks or something, and, you know, and he puts it, takes it out of his pocket, puts it on his head. And I think either it was either Kini Matamorosa Shalom or Shachiyan or something, but he said in Hebrew, you know, Shalom Shalom You know, in the chamber of Congress that I was there, it was me just amazing. And then one other thing I'll mention is that I was also in Congress when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison and became president of South Africa. And his first visit to the U.S. as president of South Africa, he spoke to Joint Session of Congress, and I was there. I actually shook his hand. And I will tell you that of all the people I had the privilege of being around in my life, you know, four or five presidents of the United States and obviously many, many other distinguished foreign leaders, domestic leaders, there was nobody who felt more holy than Nelson Mandela. He had an aura about him, I'm sure because of his years in prison and because of his nonviolent approach and having that really brought down a government from a prison cell, you know, for all practical purposes. And I'll tell you one little thing about that. He was, you, you can picture the chamber of the House of Representatives. You've seen it when you watch State of the Union addresses on TV. And, uh, you know, different members of Congress have certain places that they sit always in that chamber. So there were a bunch of old Southern white guys who were in Congress who used to sit along the back and, you know, they'd kind of sit there and they were all, you know, the old curmudgeons. Uh, and of course, you know, they lived through the time of history in America where race in the South was sort of what it is today. And so here's Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela gets up there and he had this mannerism about him where before applauding, he would wave with this like beatific face, you know? And so he's waving and I turn around and these old Southern white guys are like waving back. <laughs> anyway, it was amazing. So those just some little stories. It was a great, unbelievable so you moved from there, from Congress into higher education. Briefly tell me, what was that like and what did you learn from that experience? Well, the, the very short is when I've been in the state legislature, and, and I actually, uh, 
I, I, I tell people this is probably the first time that I knew that I was applying my Jewish values in the legislature because you know, what had happened in Ohio, like many other industrial states, a lot of the factories had gone away, the, you know, the steel plants, the coal, whatever, uh, auto plants were closing. And there was a huge debate about, you know, what was this, what to do, both what was causing it and what to do. And to this day, there was, you know, a faction who says, we're, you know, it's about international trade and we're being, excuse the expression, we're being screwed by, you know, then it was the Japanese, now it's probably the Chinese, the Korean, whatever, you know, whoever it was at the moment, you know, if only we had fair deals, I mean, does it resonate with today's uh, politics? I think I've heard that once or twice on the news, yeah. You know, and and NAFTA was when I was in Congress, I believe we're still fighting about it today, it passed when I was in Congress. So that was one faction within, I was a Democrat, within the Democratic Party, but it really crossed over, it wasn't even just party, it was in one faction in, in the thinking. Uh, but the other said, look, this is the nature of uh, global competition, right? You're not going to be able to keep these jobs. And somebody somewhere else is going to be able to do this job for less. What you have to do is you get an education, you get a better job, right? And the, growing up in Cleveland, you can't any longer just get a high school education, go work in an auto plant, make enough money to own a house and raise a nice family and take your kids on vacation every year. you gotta, you got to go to college, right? And so I became very, very involved in the issue of encouraging people to go to college, making it affordable, accessible, uh, and, and just convincing people that this was the future. Um, and so... And that's what led to my appointment because I've been very involved in all the various budgeting and fundraising, you know, scholarship programs, all the kinds of things the legislature does. And the job I was in, I didn't actually run a particular university, but the many states have this where the system of universities and somebody runs the entire system who tends to be more somebody with a governmental background. So that's how I became the chancellor. And to tell you, I just loved it. I felt like every day I could make a difference by finding some way to make it easier for somebody to go to college, to find some way to keep the cost down for somebody, to add a new program in a city, with, you know, help a school like an urban school like a Cleveland State or a Youngstown State University of Akron, help them become more prominent. I mean, you think about those cities, these industrial cities, you take these universities away, that's what they've meant to those universities. And, I mean, everybody knows, you know, Harvard and Yale and Penn and these places, but, but you can't even begin to imagine what Cleveland State means to Cleveland or what Youngstown State means to Youngstown. The University of Toledo means to, to Toledo, both to the people and to the city in terms of giving a, a rebirth of opportunity. So I just loved it. I, you know, it was such a fulfilling thing. And plus, of course, I got to work with brilliant people, all these professors and all these folks who were, you know, dedicated their lives to education and, and, you know, I got to go to graduations and see first-generation students walk across the stage and get a diploma and hear their families screaming for them. I mean, it's amazing, really amazing. So how does that job as a chancellor of a major state university system translate or lead at some point to what you're doing now, which is as the international director in Hillel, where does that transition take place? Well, first of all, obviously, as I mentioned, I never thought I'd be here. You know, look, I had been, over in different times of my career, I had been approached about different jobs uh, in the Jewish community, and either it wasn't the right time, or I, okay, I always felt that if, the, if there was something that I actually felt that I could uniquely contribute to, that given how much the Jewish, the organized Jewish community has done for me, not just Judaism itself being my, my life, but that the fact that the actual organized institution, the Jewish community, had given so much to me and my family that if there was ever a time that I could really give back, uh, not just as a lay leader, but as a professional, that I should do that. And so when they approached me about the Hillel position, it seemed like my experience in higher education, since we're obviously a college-based organization, plus, you know, frankly, my experience in politics, because we all know that higher education and politics are related, plus the Jewish 
know, we know there's politics on college campuses, the Jewish community, et cetera, that we had to deal with. So it, it felt like the combination of things I'd done probably gave me a good background for this. I'd led a large decentralized organization, which is a unique kind of management challenge. It's different than running a synagogue or something that's in one location in one place. Uh, or even a federation that's in one community, you know, it's something that's we're in 18 countries. How do you set policies? How do you raise money? All the kinds of things you need to do across a large organization. So it felt like I had some background that would be relevant. And so when they asked me to do this, I felt that it was the right thing to do at the right time. And again, that I could uh, hopefully be of some service to the community. And, and here I am four years later <laughs> and uh, doing, I, I hope, something that is valuable. You know, you know this because you work on campus. You know, the amazing thing about the Jewish people is we're so spread out. We're increasingly diverse coming, growing up in communities all over. And then we're going to end up living everywhere. And uh, it's a little bit like an hourglass, right? That uh, we come from everywhere and then for a short period of time, we actually consolidate into a, a manageable number of locations called colleges, college campuses, because we're, we're people that sends our kids to college, you know, and then we're going to go back out again. So you think about being an organization that has a responsibility in that space, feel like you can help shape the future of that's an interesting way to look at it. What's been most challenging? You mentioned some of the, the difficulties just running such a large and yet, as you put it, decentralized organization. What have been the greatest challenges that you've had to encounter and, and confront in these four years so far? Well, I, look, I think I'll, I'll mention two very, very different, right? One is just in terms of the organization itself, you know, we're on 550 campuses just in North America and then 18 countries. I mean, the entire success is going to be based on the quality of the people who are interacting with students, their educational ability, their, their ability to teach, their ability to connect. And so the demand for professional talent in this field is just massive because it's not just obviously just one person, right? We Some campuses, sure, one professional right. is all you need. Some places, you know, you need a dozen people, right, to do the job. I think Maryland has 19 now or something like that. <laughs> last, time I, last time I checked. And Rabbi Israel, who's our amazing fellow director there, who we should mention in this conversation, I'm sure would love it. Thinks he doesn't have enough, right? Because it's because he'd like to reach every, you know, right. every student. That's what we try to do. Our mission is to inspire every Jewish student to build an enduring commitment to Jewish life learning in Israel. So until we reach every, we haven't done our job. So building the system that recruits, trains, and supports our professional talents. The other thing about universities, look, College Park happens to be near Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and, you know, a couple of amazing Jewish communities. You want to be a Jewish professional, you want to work at College Park, you know, you can also live a Jewish life right. around you. That's so true when you're at College Station, Texas, or right. you're at uh, State College, Pennsylvania, or you're at the other, the other college capitals, you know, the world. I mean, if you think about it, most of the universities are actually not in major cities. Right, They're rural, in, you know, small towns, right. And so... You know, we need to send and support professionals in those places. So that, that's been the number one thing that we've really spent a lot of our time on because I just want to be, I want to recruit and then support wonderful colleagues and teachers and leaders for the campuses. Do you find uh, that there is a, a dearth of that talent that you, that you reference? I find that there's a lot of talent in the Jewish community, but the Hillel hasn't necessarily been the first choice of all of that, the level of talent that we need for the reasons that I just said. Right. So when you're talking about young rabbis graduating from seminary, Yeshiva, and they, and they have options of going to work as an assistant rabbi at a large synagogue or going to a small synagogue in a, you know, in a larger community, and then they can work their way out, you know, versus going to State College, Pennsylvania, you know, to build the Hillel and to, uh, you know, so it's, we have to be able to, to persuade these talented people. 
show them what an unbelievable uh, mission it is and rabbit it is to work with college students. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, I know. This sure. is what you do. And then to support them and help them make this their career. So so I think it's more that than it is, look, we know there's talented people out there. We need to make sure we get to heal all as many of them as we need this job. So that was one thing, I'm, you know, on one challenge level. The other is, and, and, and I think just this is something that, I just, we, we, we teased, alluded to it a little bit when we were talking about the politics and government, but this is really a time of division in the Jewish community, more division than unity. You know, it, look, if you're in a community, it's easy to go off into your corner of the Jewish community, right? Belong to your synagogue, which is a particular denomination, usually pretty uh, homogeneous, you know, in terms of approach to Jewish life and often politically and you know, or you join organizations you go to whatever you know and even if you argue with each other you're arguing over a bit of a distance and not always I mean sometimes synagogues get in fights and sometimes JCCs get in fights, but more often than not it's different groups lobbying you know uh, lobbying shells at each other you know across the but on campus you can't do that on campus you live together on campus you're one community right and so we have to be models of Jewish unity, and we have to know how to treat each other with respect, and we have to know how to learn that there are different ways of looking at, at the same issues, and that they're all equally valid. We have to do that, and I, it's been challenging, and I, and I think that the camp is affected by the world around it, right? So, so the, all these other organizations that are fighting each other at a national and global level want to bring their fights down to our campuses, right? And the you know, students don't want to fight with each other, right? Because unlike these other organizations where they then go back to their offices on different sides of town, our kids go to class together and they eat together in the, you know, the cafeteria. They go to the same Starbucks for coffee and they play on the same intramural team and they, you know, and they maybe belong to the same sorority or fraternity. And for sure, we want them to go together for Shabbos and for. I just think that we have to work so hard to make sure that we are unified people and a community. And you know, I always. It's part of my contract to quote Hillel. So, you know, I'll, I'll teach <laughs> don't separate yourself from the community. I mean, we have to make sure that people understand that the community is a value in itself. Yes, it's important that you express yourself according to your view of religious practice or your view of Torah, your view of politics. Of course, you should express that. And you should you know, stand for the things you stand for. But the community itself is a value. And so to the extent that you appreciate that you're not only going to have your own views, but you're going to live in a community of people with different views, that's something that I think has been more of a challenge than I probably would have liked or expected, but it's one that I want to run towards. I want to run right towards it because, and then think about, again, the impact we can have on the future, Rabbi, that if, if we show our, if college students learn to live together uh, amidst the difference of a belief and approach and to do so with respect and that they believe that the community, keeping the community together has value, then when they get older and they become the leaders of the communities themselves, outside, hopefully they will practice that same. Obviously such an important sentiment and, and approach and one that I find very resonant and inspiring. You know, I have a, a few follow-ups on that just from the more, I guess, uh, from a skeptical perspective, trying to play devil's advocate, not philosophically, but just pragmatically. On the one hand, my first question would be, how do you translate that vision, a, a leadership vision, trickle it down, so to speak, to these masses of people, all politics are local, as, as I'm sure you know, much better than I, and where you have individuals that don't share that value or maybe pay lip service to that value, but really aren't prepared to sacrifice for it or to really live by it. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, 
It's obviously a challenge. I would say a couple things. Part of it is trying to model that kind of leadership. You know, doing so between myself and the leaders of other organizations, campus and other organizations generally. Doesn't mean I've been perfect at it. You know, for sure I make mistakes and have made mistakes, but but I think it's something I've tried to provide a model of. And I think people see that. I do think that that makes a difference. And then look, as I already mentioned, we're a very, very large organization. And so I'm, I'm under no illusions that, that we'll get it right everywhere uh, all the time. Uh, we'll make mistakes. But I do think that overwhelmingly, we do well at this. And that the important thing is to lift up that we do well at it. The important thing is to lift up that college campuses are by and large actually models of communal relationships, internal community relationships, and not allow the exceptions to be the story, but to really let the majority of behavior and activity, and then quietly go deal with the exceptions, you know, when we hear about them. But I think there's so much good that's going on and so much hard work that I see amongst my colleagues on campus and your colleagues on campus to build community that we should make note of the positive. Fair enough. I guess my other question on this way of thinking is, again, from the 30,000 foot perspective, it sounds amazing. I mean, like you said, Jewish unity is so paramount. How do you deal with it though when you get down to the microcosmic level and let's say dealing with real substantive differences, philosophical, theological, whatever they might be, I'll just you know cite on the left you have the whole open Hillel movement that materialized, what was it, two years ago or so, where you have people that are, whatever those beliefs would be coming from the left in terms of Israel that are counter to sort of mainstream American Jewish organizational perspectives on Israel. And then on the right, you have, whether it's a Chabad or outreach movements, the likes of which I'm involved with, that have you know substantive theological distinctions or places of disagreement. How do you translate a vision of unity on the ground when you're dealing with real differences, with actual substantive differences of opinion? So I think let's let's save Israel for the end of this answer because I think it's sort of a unique challenge that we face today. But if, if you look at you know, what was Martin Luther King's famous quote about the arc of history bends towards justice or something? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm mingling the quote, but I bending towards justice, I know, is the... Uh, so I think, it, look, I think if you look at the last couple decades on campus, that we've made amazing strides in learning and understanding each other, uh, certainly theologically, certainly in terms of religious practice. It doesn't mean that your organization and or Bill are going to believe the same things, come down on the same side of different halachic questions, or read with how you teach a lesson the same way. I do think that whereas maybe you know 30 years ago, a student who grew up in a Orthodox community coming to campus and seeing a form rabbi or seeing a female rabbi or something, you know, might have been a shock. Now I think it's you know, we we all understand. This is part of the community, and I think the same is true of a you know a student grows up in a secular community, a secular home to come and yourself, Kabbalah Rabbi on campus, and, and be, be exposed to Orthodox form of Judaism. So I actually think we have you know wide tolerance, and I, I've watched you and my colleague, you know Rabbi Israel and Kabbalah Rabbi, uh, treat each other with respect and dignity, and each other's approaches to things. So. I think we've made amazing progress there. I think we've made amazing progress on issues like inclusion. Again, it doesn't mean that each one of you would interpret Jewish law the same way with respect to each student. But I see and I believe that there is understanding and respect that there are different points of view. Each will advocate their point of view. Each will teach their point of view in the most compelling way. 
But I see very, very few conflicts along the religious lines. And I think that's progress. I mean, I don't think that was the case at least, and I think it's real progress. And so that brings me to Israel. Uh, Look, I think we're certainly at a moment where college campuses have become targets of some of the most virulent, you know, not just anti-Israel, truly anti-Semitic. I mean, you know, know, the the accepted placement word, you know, for, uh, you know, for attacking Jews. And, you know, when I took this job, I knew Israel on campus was a debate, but I didn't have any idea of the absolute depravity of some of what's going on. This disconnect from truth and fairness. And so I think that what's happening out there is it's hard for people to know where to draw the line between legitimate dissent and debate, which is always in our tradition. And for goodness sakes, anybody who goes to Israel and sees the vibrant democracy. <laughs> How many political parties do we have there? <laughs> follow, the, you know, follow the elections, right? So the vibe, you know, you know, debate and anybody who follows the history of, of modern Zionism, the debates between Begin and Ben Gurion, and uh, I mean, this is nothing. And even in American Jewish community, right, between those the early Zionists and then the people who came to Zionism. I mean, this is absolutely a place for vigorous debates. And at the same time, there are people who clearly are just simply trying to destroy the Jewish state and the Jewish. And to know where that line is is not easy. And so you referenced this campaign called Open Hillel, you know, which we have guidelines. We've attempted to articulate where we think those lines are, that we welcome this broad debate, but we will not welcome those who seek to destroy the state of Israel, the Jewish state. And there are some who think that, that we put those lines in the wrong places, right? And you know, they have every right to argue and to push and to debate. And I do feel that some people are respectfully a little naive about what really is some of what's happening on campus and what some of these people really are trying to accomplish. So I've been in a position a little bit of being the sort of heavy handed, I guess, on this, a little bit of the bad guy, but it's okay. It's my job. And everybody has boundaries, you know, for a reason. But the university has boundaries. They tolerate certain kinds of speech and other kinds. Professors decide what goes on in their class and not. We have every right to decide. We, by the way, we would never tell somebody, don't speak on campus. Any organization wants to host a speaker, wants to, you know, we, we believe in free speech. Absolutely. But you want to speak at Hillel, that is a place where we have to know how to draw the lines. And it's just not easy. And Look, we're also in an era of social media, and we're in an era where everybody can have an opinion and debate, and they can know every decision, right? Ten years ago, if we decided not to have a speaker, a certain speaker at a Hillel somewhere in America, how many people knew we had done that? <laughs> right. You know, it's, uh, everybody's going to debate it. I go talk to somebody in New York, and they're asking me what happened in San Francisco last <laughs> night in San Francisco. Some people are following this stuff so closely. And that's the other thing, is we're passionate about this, because how privileged we are to live in a time where we have not only this amazing Jewish diaspora in America, but we've got to see it in Israel. I'm going to get on a plane today. I don't know when you're going to post this podcast, but for your, your listeners should know, I am this afternoon going to get on a plane, and tomorrow I will be in Yerushalayim. You know? I mean, it's incredible, right? We live in this incredible time. Uh, I'm going to land at an airport that's the, that's the, the welcome portal of the Jewish state. For, you know, I mean, it's an amazing thing, right? And so we're so passionate about it that people, you know, they, they get their fists up really, really quickly. And, and we have to work very hard at this. And we have not mastered it. We have a long way to go to your question about the, but we'll get there. Just like we've gotten there on some of our other differences, we will get there on this. I mean, I happen to think that it's a lot easier to be the one 
taking the the pot shots than the one actually creating the policies. Sub so, W, I wonder if you ever turn to some of the critics and say, okay, you draft the policy. Here are the basic sentiments. The the you know the what we're looking for. Give it to me and, and see what they can come up with. <laughs> well, you know what Look, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by training in the court, right? Only the hardest cases make the Supreme Court. The easy cases are resolved in the lower courts, right? So cases you don't hear about at LL every day are clear. Yes, we're going to do this program. No, we're not going to do that program, right? That happens thousands of times a day all over the world. It's the one that is controversial, you know, that, that is the one that's going to get all the attention. It's just right. like, it's, you know, right. the toughest case Make the, make the right? right. Okay. What, one final question and then a couple really final rapid fire questions. But my one main question for you is on a more personal level, how is working for Hillel, working for the Jewish community and this whole process that you've gone through, how has that impacted your own Jewish journey and your own personal development? Look, it's definitely been a, uh, it, it's been a wonderful thing for me. I, I, had the privilege to be around some of the greatest teachers and scholars and listen to great professionals doing amazing work. So it's been uh, it's a whole new world of teachers for me. And so I really feel like I've learned and continue to learn every day on this job. It's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. And just some final rapid fire. What is your favorite Jewish holiday and why? <laughs> great question. Uh, I would say uh, maybe Yom Kippur. I first of all, I, I actually should say enjoy the fast, but I like the, that that we just are focused. I, I find that it concentrates me, and I find that by the you know by Nila, I really change. It's a time of meditation and prayer, and I really do feel like it's a transformative day for me. Awesome! If you could invite one person to your Shabbat table from all of history, who would it be? Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. Wow. Never again be a prophet like Moshe, right? Uh, you know, the, lead, the greatest leader in the history of the world, and I'd love to love to learn from him. Awesome. And final question: What is the most surprising hobby or quality that you have? Something that people would not expect or know about. That's something that that's a part of your life. <laughs> uh, right now, I don't feel like I have that many. If you, the only thing, it's it's not a hobby. Well, a hobby, I don't know. It definitely, for me, my obsession is books. If you come to my house, I mean, there's books piled everywhere. I don't <laughs> want any, on any trip that I don't come back with more books in my suitcase. I know where every used bookstore is and on the way to every meeting that I have. So you'll find me in a used bookstore somewhere. Wonderful. A real bibliophile and a real servant of the Jewish people. Eric Fingerhut, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Have a wonderful trip to the Holy Land and look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you, Rabbi. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.